0: This week we're on episode 96 and we're pleased to be welcoming Aidan Martin, um, author of Euphoric Recall. Um, We've been on a bit of a novel kick recently, obviously. Massive congratulations this week to Doug Stewart um, and all the team behind *Shaggy Bean*. I actually squealed when I heard the news and probably was more buzzing about this result than I was when Scotland qualified for the Euros. Um, But I, I don't think I was alone in that one. This week we're moving Mare into the ballpark of memoir. Um, Aiden speaks to his about his past experiences with drugs, alcohol addiction, abuse. Um, talks about his political outlook and, and how he works within the community to make people better. We discussed recurring topics like Aces and even touched on, you know, safe consumption rooms, which has been a big issue in the news recently. Um, so we really hope you enjoy. Thanks for all your continued support. Um, I was saying, uh, I, I was actually sitting there on Thursday night when the, the Booker Prize got nominated, award got nominated, uh, yeah. announced, sorry, and you'd congratulated Doug on a tweet, uh-huh. and I'd actually had a tweet written up on the Rebel City account going that like, Doug was the last mm-hmm. author we had in, like, no pressure, and then I thought, you know what, I'm not going to do that to you, <laughs> but, uh, so <laughs> I, th- thankfully I resisted that temptation. You know what I mean?
1: Uh, you know, it's been a, a mad year, so some good news for Scotland with football and then we're
2: a, a Scottish author, so
1: both things
0: are yeah,
2: great. It, we're already recording, mate, just when you're ready.
0: Nope, No worries, so hello and welcome to what is, what, episode 96 of uh, Rebel City podcast. Um, I just take a wee minute up front, just to pass for congratulations on to Doug Stewart. Um, regular listeners will know he was in a few weeks ago and in the last few days has been awarded the, the Booker Prize, only the second Scott, and the history of the award to actually win it. So congratulations to him and congratulations Hi, to his team. Amazing, very experienced. Very experienced with him. Um, his team as well was absolutely top-notch. So, you know, it's a great success for all of them. So congratulations. Um, and we've been saying all year that, or at least for you know several months now, that it's been a great year for Scottish literature in general. So we're going to keep following up on it. Um, we're going to have a bit of change of pace today, though, because... With Graham and Doug and, and sort of custom um, we were covering novels today. We are moving into memoir territory. Um, and we've actually got with um Aidan Martin. Hi Aiden, how's it going?
1: How are you doing, guys? Good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Not at all, man. Well I've been following um obviously, you know, your account in the book over recent weeks, um and now felt like a really good time to get you in because, you know, I'm just been booked after in the last few months, so um it's it's good to mix it up with a bit a non-fiction here, yeah. um, so in terms of the the book, the book's called Euphoric Recall.
1: That's right, Euphoric Recall. Yeah,
0: now, straight away, I, I've got to say I love the name. It's very sort Thank of you. like gripping. It kind of like grabs your attention. Um, like, what's what's that a reference to, or where does it come from?
1: It's actually a saying, and well, some people in recovery will recognise the saying when you look back with nostalgia on times that particularly were not so great (laughs) so Mm. it could be like when you think back like me I'm in recovery so I don't touch a substance so when I think back to a substance or a time that I remember fondly despite the fact there was so much brutal times as well so um, it was the book was called something else in the beginning and my publisher said to me it'll be a different name and it'll be in the book somewhere and there's a sentence where I say something about, you know, this gives me a euphoric recall. And I just thought, that's the name. That's the name of the book. Mm-hmm. That's quite catchy, isn't it?
2: Was that your publisher's way of telling you that your other title was <laughs> shite?
1: <laughs> yeah, man. That was my publisher's very polite way, saying your title's <laughs> shit, so get a better one. Um, but I'm glad she did, because I couldn't imagine a different name for the book than what we have now. Mm-hmm. And and that's incredible, you're a, man. You're a first-time author, yeah? Yes, yeah, I mean... <clears throat> Seven weeks ago, nobody knew who I was in the literary world, so brand new.
0: So, I mean, obviously, you, just give us a, a wee bit about the book then. Let's, let's hear just kind of a general overview, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, of course. So, it's a memoir. So, it's it's a real account of my life, um, and it was very, very strict. I mean, there's loads of extremes in it anyway. But I was very strict when I was writing it, that I wasn't going to exaggerate anything or... Spice anything up. I don't think I needed to. If you've anyone that's read the book, will know there's no need to exaggerate anything. But I made sure to be very strict in keeping this, from my point of view, what really happened in life. You know, a couple of years ago, someone in my family passed away, someone very close to me, and it just sparked off this feeling in me to to write. You know, I'd I'd always wanted to write. My mum said that before I got trapped in addiction, I wanted to be a writer, but I forgot about all that and. You know, I went to high school where I wasn't really nurtured. Nobody noticed I had a talent for writing. So this all came about after getting into recovery. You know, I'd been in and out of recovery. I'd had some harsh relapses. I came back from my most recent one just over two years ago, and then someone died, and it just sparked off this feeling. There's so much trauma, and I like writing. I find it cathartic. Why not sit down and write? And when I first started it, like I had no idea that I'd get it published. It was just me writing.
2: Do you feel like that, actually, we were talking, uh, uh, how many times are we going to talk about the guy, but um, when we spoke to Douglas Stewart, he was talking about how the fact that he didn't have a publisher, he didn't actually have a vision for it being published, That was more for him actually, made the um, creative process a wee bit less pressure laid and actually like, meant that it just sort of flowed. Was that the same for yourself?
1: Very much, because... At that point, I didn't even know you had to get an agent. I didn't even know what I was writing was a memoir. I didn't know that the raw form of it was called a manuscript. <laughs> I just knew I was writing. I, I, once I started putting stuff together, I knew what the first chapter was going to be. The first chapter was going to be going back to the biggest trauma that's ever happened to me, and I thought that's the place I need to begin for myself. Then when I started making it into a bit of a book, you know, I thought I was writing a book, I didn't know it was a manuscript, I had to research, right, what I'm actually writing. (laughs) Then that was like I discovered that it was called a memoir and I I researched how many words would be in a memoir and then I just chopped it up into chapters and I wanted it to be 12 chapters specifically to be symbolic of the 12 steps to recovery. So Mm. I thought, okay, I know how many chapters I'm going to have now. I know how many words I'm going to have in each chapter and I know what story I want to tell from my life. So I know how to put it in order now. So yeah, in the beginning there was zero pressure because... I wasn't writing for anybody else. I was just writing for me.
2: Uh-huh. And was the book your purpose, your 12 steps? Because one of the 12 steps really is to find a purpose in your life because I think I'd, we're starting to know as as we get more educated about addiction that it it probably is a lack of purpose, a lack of direction in your life. So was this a way for you to get that for yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a few different areas in my life where I was getting purpose, but you know, My mum knows me better than anybody and and she reminded me that I always wanted to write. It was always my passion. It was always what I wanted to do. But I grew up in a lad's culture and I got caught up in a life addiction and there was a lot of violence and I went to a school that I felt like didn't educate me, the high school. And so trying to aspire to be a writer wasn't realistic. It was more realistic to go straight into that lad culture lifestyle. Um, Mm -hmm. So to then be in recovery and go through the 12 steps, maybe I was directed back to that purpose that should have been there all along. Um, perhaps in another life, I'd have just been a writer, but I got taken on a different path. So I a long way to answer your question is that I think um, as a result of getting into recovery and doing the 12 steps has led me back to this. And I, I truly believe now this is what I'm meant to do with the rest of my life.
0: That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> looking at it, it feels quite, un- I don't know if I'm, I don't have any stats to hand it in, but it just feels about unusual for a first-time author to go straight to a memoir? Is that—is that something that you've came across or did it just feel natural? Did you spend a lot of time considering a mere sort of fictionalised version of the events?
1: You know, one thing I avoided doing was looking up other people because I didn't want to throw myself off. I had my own ideas I was writing for me. When I realised it was potentially something I was going to pitch to a publisher, I just didn't look at what other people were doing. I just focused purely on what I was doing. Um, so yeah, I just I just focused on the writing. I, like I say in the beginning, I didn't even know it was a memoir. I got a a review done at the very very beginning, like when it was just really raw. And I paid my mum lent me some money, and I paid this woman who is from the literary world. I paid her four hundred pounds to review it, and she gave me a bad review. And she <laughs> um, thought I she thought I glamorized drugs too much, and and said that it would be impossible to get published about addiction unless I was a celebrity the only celebrities have got a big enough following to get a book out there and all this kind of mm. and she suggested to me you know why don't you fictionalize it and then you can mess around with the story and stuff and I was like, like as extreme as it is I don't need to fictionalize this and yeah. I'm not I'm not going to fictionalize it so like I was given advice to do that and it just felt wrong because this it's like in recovery you, you do what's called a share so I don't know if you're familiar with that but like you share your experience, and someone yeah. else will, will identify with your experience. And if, but well, if I fictionalize this, where's the identification? You can you can identify with fiction, but when it's somebody's real story, I think there's more scope for identifying with. It. And so I just mm. stuck to my guns, and I don't have an agent either. I just got a publisher, and here we are.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what well, was it, the what was your poisoner choice?
1: Oh, wow. Okay, so... Um, did, you have a wee,
2: th- did you have a wee uh, spice rack <laughs> was, type thing? I, w- so, what day
1: of the week was it? <laughs> um, I went for a lot of different substances, but for me, it was two particular I would call drugs, but like I think even like gambling is a drug to someone. You know, It doesn't matter yeah. what it is, but for me, it was cocaine, and I would say sex, but it was more degradation. I was I was seeking out abuse. That's a big part of my story. Is I would seek out abuse um, from people. So you could say sex, stroke, degradation, and cocaine, and and one amplifies the other type of thing. So mm-hmm. those those were the poisons of choice. But obviously, alcohol had to be whatever I was doing. I had to have alcohol as well. And so. They all intertwine with each other.
2: Yeah, they were the ones. And, and well, and that, I mean, I've, I've not read your book yet. I'm going to read it. Um, I've just, or maybe I'm, I'm becoming more a fan of audio books. I don't know if you've got an audio version of your book.
1: Uh, we just yeah, finished recording that. So it's coming out soon.
2: Superb, because um, I'm just mad into them. Um, but me and you have got something in common where I identified as a sex addict, and a porn addict as well, like on top of that. Yep. so. Um, I know what you mean. Where it's it's not really about the sex. It's more no. about the aye, like like you're saying. You're seeking abuse. You're sort of um, hating yourself a wee bit. So I mm-hmm. absolutely man. Um,
1: it's like um, it's almost like self-harming.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was best mates with Charlie for a considerable period of time as well. So you've had probably you know the two bullseyes eyes on on this podcast to be mm-hmm. fair. I um, You you touched on it yourself in relation to this type of thing and it was that you you tried to be as as sort of open and honest as possible. And like looking through what people have had to say about the book so far and like barring the person who took your money then slated you, um, Mm -hmm. the reviews have been like really positive. And like one of the things that I've seen coming back time and time and time again was people's appreciation for How open and honest and and as you say, in some instances, really brutal about what actually happened. Like, was it difficult to like put so much of yourself out
1: there like that? It was, but you know, I knew fine well that I'd be doing myself a disservice and I'd be doing the readers a disservice if I held back. Um, and I didn't put things in there in a sensational way either. I've not put anything in there and and sensationalised it. I've just it's all within the context of what's went on i spoke to someone who's a singer before the book was due to be released this is after the book was through the final edits and stuff and i had one of those moments like oh shit it's like okay this is some real stuff going out there now and this guy's a singer and he'd done this version of billy eilish and i loved it and i messaged him and i says i love that version you've done i says it was so real and he said something to me and it really stuck with me he says you know what he says people just want honesty he says if you give them honesty he says they're going to respect it Um, And I think as well, something I was very careful to do, because my story ultimately is one of recovery, but I was very, very careful not to put myself on a pedestal because there's a lot of people in my past I've hurt and there's people that have hurt me. Um, And whilst recovery is an amazing thing and I've worked so hard for it, I'm not a perfect human being. And I think if Mm -hmm. I presented this story in such a way that it was like, oh, this was me then and this is me now and that was it, I just Mm -hmm. don't think it would have resonated so I was very honest about people that wronged me but I'm very honest about who I wronged and who I've hurt yeah
0: which is obviously a vital part of the recovery process isn't it
1: yes definitely
2: so why do you think somebody reading it and this was something that was actually like I remember back in the 90s when Trainspotting came out this was a criticism of Trainspotting where people thought that Irvin Welsh was glamorizing drugs if you actually watch Trainspotting there isn't a lot of glamour in that movie no So, is that like a fear thing, do you think, that, oh, well, if if this guy puts out a book that talks about these, clearly, like, and I think with the cocaine one, is, like, clearly a big issue, like, not a lot of people talk about it, Mm -hmm. people talk about taking coke, like, oh, getting a gram or taking a line or whatever it is that that they'll they'll sort of talk about, having a laugh, not a lot of people talking about, like, how destructive it's actually being to people, like... Um, there's a bit of a meme going about when people talk about depression and it's like, are hey, well, you going to take Coke Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mate? Like, what you expecting to happen here? But I think more people take it than what we what actually acknowledge it. So do you think that's like a fear thing where if, if you put out a book that talks about cocaine that, oh, that's, that's glamorising drugs, when actually you're talking about the destruction that it had for you and then your recovery from that? So why do you think that's a, a sort of take on it?
1: Well, what she worried it was that... Uh anyone that's impressionable reading the book might have seen... I was talking about cocaine when it was first good. Before I talked about the low, I talk about the high.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And she, she was worried that someone impressionable would read that and want to go and take cocaine. And I'm like, aye, maybe if have to just read one paragraph, but if they read the whole fucking book, they're going to see how bad it yeah. gets, how quickly it gets. And that's that comes back to the honesty thing, right? If I wrote a book and said, day one, first line of cocaine was horrendous, I kept doing it. And it was horrendous all the way through and I kept doing it. That's a lie. No one's going to believe that. Yeah. Had to, you know, there had to have been a reward in the beginning. Otherwise, you don't keep going back to it and you've changed yeah. your brain that there's a reward. And that's the same way Anything Gambling, porn, sex, whatever, alcohol, whatever the addiction is, food, social media. Once your brain knows that gives me pleasure and escapism and I can, you know, um, Deal with my emotions and my fears and anxieties, and or I can celebrate with that, you know, all that stuff. So if I didn't tell that part of the story, the rest of the story would have fell apart because it would have been shite. So she, in my opinion, just missed the point big time. Yeah, um,
0: I think it's a point that people have missed for decades. We can go all the way back to bloody Black Sabbath, and you know, this is an argument that comes back time and time again that you know, oh, this is this could you know lead to you know violence, it could lead to addiction. It could lead and almost always that is like never verifiably the case for anybody. You know what I mean? Like I think it's people having to confront their own discomfort with addiction, their own discomfort with how messy recovery can be on the way out the other side and stuff like that. And it's just easier for them to say, Well hold on, you might turn somebody down the wrong path with that when in actual fact on the flip side you could be turning many people back onto the right one.
1: That's the point. I mean, in train spot, and there's a baby that dies because they're all wasted. And there's uh-huh. there's a character that over, overdoses and, and dies or whatever. And there's mm-hmm. there's so much trauma and there's so much heartache. And, and my book's got that as well. So, of course, you need to show what draws a person to any kind of addiction. That's only one part of the story. It's the same if I'm sharing in a recovery meeting. I don't just start with how bad it was and then I'm in recovery. You talk about, okay, well this is why I took it, this is how good it felt, but this is how bad it got, how quickly it got so bad. Um, If we have open and honest discussions, we'll make more progress. There's no point lying and hiding away parts of the truth, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely, man. It needs to be relatable. I mean, I did a a BBC um, thing about porn and sex, and I spoke about sex addiction, and some of the things that people come back to me would be like, when I tell them about being in sex addiction, you're like, I spent a six-month period where I must have slept with over 100 people. It's like, that's fucking awesome, mate. And you're like, but it, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I get that. Might feel awesome to you, mate. You you know what I mean? But it's really not because here's what happens because of that. Um, and I think that it's it's good to know that because there'll be a lot of young people who think, well, I enjoy myself. So why should I not do it? Like, why should I, why should I not take a link? Because I really enjoy it. And it's just telling them, yeah, you will enjoy it, but it's a slippery slope. Especially if you've got like you were saying earlier about traumatic circumstances in your life where you actually realize mm-hmm. you make that connection where Oh, I feel like normal and I feel better about myself and I don't think about all the shit that's happened to me when I'm high And it's just about what that high is. Do you know what I, I mean? I think so,
1: the, the woman who was reviewing my book would, is the sort of person, I mean she wasn't a bad person by the way She gave me some good feedback as well. It was just I think she misunderstood parts of the book And
3: mm-hmm.
1: I think people that they ask the wrong questions, right? Her question might be, uh, why are you addicted to this? My question would be, why wouldn't you be addicted to that? Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's something that gives you instant pleasure in a world where there's a lot of suffering and trauma and pain. And if you come from any circumstance where you've got trauma and pain and suffering and you're part of a culture that maybe has the same thing, it's, it's historical yeah. and it repeats itself, why wouldn't you go back to the thing that gives you instant release time and time again? You know? And, exactly. If you're doing a book about recovery, you need to talk about why you were addicted in the first place. And that's that's what I got. And by the way, the book very quickly, I mean, very, very quickly takes you down the dark alleyways as well. So, mm-hmm.
0: I think this is something that is in very similar, like what you were just saying, very similar to something that uh, Graham Armstrong had said when he came in. Because I think when he came in to speak to us, it'd been like the first of the podcasts that he'd went on to do, but he'd spent like the week speaking to people at The Guardian and people at these, you know, London-centric sort of publications and, and sort of, you know, TV, radio and so on and so forth. And he felt like he was getting asked the same questions over and over and over again. They were very like similar packs of questions, whereas he came and spoke to us and we have that loved experience. And it was something that was like a completely different, you know, energy, a completely different sort of experience and... I think some that we both like really took something and it was because we had that commonality. We, we, we all had different things that at one time or another we had been addicted to or had been, you know, yeah. victims of. But we shared the same sort of core experience and, you know, you're able to talk think, in a much more sort of constructive manner than with somebody who doesn't have that experience and look, you know, through a lens. You know yeah. what I
1: mean? Yeah, I agree.
0: One of the other things that, like the, you know, addiction and, you know, how honest you're about that, like, how difficult we find to talk about addiction, drugs, recovery, etc. Um, you touched on it yourself as, the, the you know, abuse, um, something that we've been pretty reluctant to get into because, again, it's not our experience, um, and obviously I don't want to go into details and, you know, potentially ruin books or anything like that, but just in a general sense, it's in similar ways something that our society struggles really Difficult way to talk in any sort of productive manner. Like mm-hmm. uh, when you're writing the book and you're being conscious about how open you're about your experience in that area, is that something that you're trying to address in any way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've had feedback of people to say that I was able to describe mm-hmm. abuse I suffered without going into too many graphic details. It was hard hitting enough the way I described it without being unnecessarily graphic. There is no way to have open conversations um, that's safe. You know, if people in the conversation all feel safe to have it, then we should have the conversation. And I knew for me personally, it was time to write this stuff. I knew that, you know, a lot of people are struggling. I'm not trying to make this a gender conversation, but certainly I know that the men I grew up with, the male friends I had, out of all the males I grew up with, only one of them that I know of has not struggled with substance abuse or addiction or mental health. That's a hell of a lot of lads that still struggle or have struggled. Yep. With, whether they call it alcoholism, addiction, mental health, all of it, violence, incarceration, even lads I had problems with, lads I used to fight with that were in the, the book as well, that served time and just came out. So there's a mm-hmm. whole bunch of us suffering and abuse can mean a lot of different things. Abuse, a lot of people might go straight to sexual abuse, which is what I talk about in my book. But abuse can be loads of things. It can be neglect. It can be growing up in a house where your parents are dealers and that's all you've ever known and you become a dealer. It can be physical. There's, there's loads of different types of abuse. Mm. And and then I would argue that a lot of us lads for this culture would then we all kind of abuse each other because we were all fighting each other and, and tearing each other down all the time. But it's, it's, all, Definitely. That we, it's all we knew. It's all we knew. And um it's like, there's a whole bunch of guys aged 30 up who are now just trying to think fucking hell, who am I? Who the hell was I supposed to be back then? And what am I going to yeah. do with my life now? So I mm-hmm. <laughs> answer your question abuse is something that as long as it's discussed with people that feel well enough mentally to talk about it, we should talk about it. As long yeah, as I'm not sensationalizing
2: that. yeah, absolutely, I, man. I, I completely agree. I think like I have quite a, a strongly opinionated girlfriend, which is, like, a good thing. Oh, sometimes. <laughs> she doesn't listen to the podcast, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's usually
0: sat right there, uh,
2: she? <laughs> she's, she's, she's a um Um, She's um, very much, like, uh no, I wouldn't say it, she's not a radical feminist, but she's a feminist, and quite a lot of the time we have discussions about the impact of the patriarchy, and I know that this has become kind of, like, almost like the woke olympics type stuff but i think what you're talking about is that boys are just as much a a victim of the patriarchal society that we we grew up in as what women are um and i think like that's just i mean what you're talking about really is toxic masculinity like when you're a teenager he's doing nothing but tear strips off each other slag each other fight with each other if there's anybody in your group that just so happens to be a victim and I mean not like in a broader sense of victim, not just a victim yeah. of abuse, but just happens to be the weaker member he's all relentless with them mm-hmm. and that is something that I experienced, and Matt's experienced yeah. that you've experienced, I think this is a common thing amongst like men and boys is that banter like the pure lad banter type stuff mm-hmm. it hurts you so so much oh that my. you just I don't know man, like you just almost develop these um, coping mechanisms and my coping mechanism for that was to outlad the guy mm. that was like Is the that... the big dick do you know what I mean like I would just be like I'm going to be alpha I'm going to be alpha but see like yourself I was very creative I was actually a really sensitive wee boy and that just get fucking absolutely like drilled at me absolutely drilled at me as young and that's what I, I mean I've spoke about this many times in the podcast that's what I attribute to my sort of dysfunctional behaviour as I've grew older was this whole don't cry, all right? So then I learned not yeah. to be emotional. And then as I grew up, I learned that my weaknesses, which happened to be my appearance, um, the way I spoke, get picked on sometimes. And like that sort of, that just get absolutely like nailed. And then I had to sort of like become somebody that I'm not. And then as I've got older, like you're saying, into my 30s, when I had about 29, 30, I was just like, what the fuck is going on here? Because I just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And so went through like a whole load of changes. And I think this is quite a common story that we're hearing amongst our peers. And especially, and I think unfortunately it took for the suicide rate to go fucking mental for us to actually go, wait a minute, what's going on here? But yeah. I suppose my point is, is that we, there is a, there's been a load of focus on women, and rightfully so, through like yeah. the 80s and the 90s. Oh, wow where they had to get their university numbers up, they had to get women into the, the boardroom. That's still an ongoing battle at the top end. But I, f- I feel, and put my neck out here, that boys have been left behind a wee bit. And I think that, as and especially in the sort of working-class, middle-class communities, we need a focus on boys and men to try and help them go over these this bullsh- these bullshit ideas that get yeah. absolutely like smacked into us as kids. Do you know what I mean? I, I
1: agree with a lot of that. I think... I mean, again, I totally agree with you. Like, women have had to fight for all sorts of things that they should never have had to be fighting for, and and they're still battling. Like a lot of different people that have suffered inequalities. But yep. I think I think if you're a a male at times, you could be kind of demonised at the moment as being the enemy. Um, one example I give is that the Me Too movement. Right, I was I was abused by an armed man. I was the male victim who was abused by a man when I was a child there was nothing in the me too movement about what happens for a man that was abused by another man that was very much a male perpetrator female victim discussion and yeah. so and again I understand that most of the time it is um, male perpetrators and, and female victims and I'm not taking anything away from that but for me I was like who, where do I go who do I talk yeah. to um, and you know I had, I'm i in uni and I was in a class last year and one of my lecturers, who's a great lecturer who I, I really admire, but I think she may be a feminist and she said to the class that if you're a straight white male you have the most privilege and therefore the most responsibility in society and I, I felt like that was one of the most irresponsible statements to make because mm. I know that there's so many men suffering with addiction, there's so many men incarcerated, there's so many men Uh, but the suicide rates are massively high
0: and violent crime
1: yeah i mean crime on it's usually man-on-man crime so there's there's a lot of males that are victims and suffering and and the more they get told that they're the most privileged in society the less they're going to come forward and and say listen i need help and Mm -hmm. it's these things mental health suicide substance abuse addiction even gambling addiction I'm not a gambling addict but I know from friends it's rife addiction and that it's rife so men are struggling too and I guess what I'm trying to say is I would prefer if we didn't make the conversation so gendered and we just mm-hmm. made it about human beings that are struggling um, yeah. and I, it's, I just I'm, and that was a master's degree class I'm sitting in and I'm, I was ironically one of three males in the class <laughs> and I'm thinking you know, I felt a bit alienated in the class. I felt a little yeah. bit, okay, now I feel like I'm a minority in my own class because I've just been told I'm the most privileged here, but I'm an addict who struggles with mental health and suicide. And I'm also a father who's had to escape and fight for everything he gets as a father because we don't have equal rights either. So uh, it's not as straightforward as, as yeah. you know, you're a man, so you've got plenty of privilege. Yes, that's white
2: right, men like that. Just white men.
1: We've
0: neglected the feelings of men and young boys is something that is not allowed. And obviously now we're only really starting to come to terms with it, you know what I mean? Um, in terms of this kind of, you know, ballpark that we're talking about just now, I noticed that in, in looking you up and the build-up to this, that you were talking recently about, you know, aces and stuff, or adverse childhood experiences, which is something that we've had guests on and, and sort of spoke about extensively. Was that part of your recovery journey getting into that or is that something that you've become aware of sort of subsequently?
1: Kind of, kind of both. Um, It's a relatively new theory and it's one I think is very important. Um, I've, you know, I'm studying a subject, I'm studying social work at master's degree level. I got my honours degree in 2017 in social sciences and I've worked. In loads of different environments: mental health, addiction, homelessness, youth hostels. I've worked with people with bloodborne viruses. I've worked with uh, a lot of people for a lot of different backgrounds and different traumas. Mm-hmm. Whether it's um, you know different genders, different race, religion, all different kind of identifications. Yeah. One thing that was a common denominator for a lot of people who were struggling was that a lot of them had stuff that had gone on in their childhood. And for me, again, adverse childhood experiences you might be tempted to think that's a sexual thing that's usually sex- like abuse, yeah. like sexual abuse um, or se- victims of sexual abuse. But again, adverse childhood experiences can be someone that was neglected at home or someone that witnessed domestic abuse or a lot of violence or was taken threat lunch.
2: Even just a threat of violence is like an adverse childhood experience. Um, yeah. The first time I engaged with them, I was at uni as well. Um, and it was like... Tick. Tick. And I was just sitting there going, holy shit, man, this is like, an, like a, a very brief autobiography, yeah. like a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. And then when I thought about other people, I was like, fuck, man, I know people that have got all of these, man. It's just, I, I think that you're right, it, it's a new thing, but it it's almost like not a new thing. If you look back at the history of psychology and what Freud and Jung were saying at, about the formative years, it's been there, we've just totally. never really engaged with uh, it, do you know what I mean?
1: Freud talks about unconscious forces affecting your behaviour something that's happened in your childhood then you start behaving in a certain way but you're not conscious of it it's the same kind of stuff man
3: yeah.
1: I, I think cases is great and I think whether it's just the next trend theory, I don't care it's, it's raising the subject that needs to be raised and, mm. and again, it doesn't matter how a person identifies We, I think we all deserve to have the right support mechanisms in place
2: yeah absolutely i think one of the big kickbacks that we got, and i think matt will agree we've seen quite a lot of this when we had james doherty on um i don't know if you know james through your work and we were talking about like gabor matty and this was maybe two years ago or something like that with james on um and a lot of the stuff that came back was well i grew up with a heroin addicted mother and i've done all right for myself like that and you're kind of like wanting to say to people like that might be true but um like are you on the edge like how is your mental health really you might have you might have a good job you might have a house you might have managed to find a partner have kids well great absolutely like fantastic but you are like a single percentile of people that came through where you came from and also like what other dysfunctions like you know what i mean like a lot of they might be having affairs, they might actually be going out on a Friday night and getting coked out their mind and having to work the Monday to Friday and do the weekend. And it's like, that's no really like actual living. And how much joy do you feel in your life? Like, that was kind of a weird one for me because we, me and Matt came for the scheme. And when I seen that list, I instantly just started to feel empathy and affinity with guys that were round about me that maybe bullied me or yes. Yeah. And fuck man I remember that guy's mum was a bit of a mess she would get found in hedges and people would be helping her back home And mm-hmm. so that's why I became a bully whereas there was, there was other guys in sort on of Twitter and Facebook when we put that episode out it was almost like nah fuck that that's just an excuse I've managed to do it how come uh, this junkie and that yep. junkie and like that type of chat like, where do you think that comes from do you think that that is again a sort of um, just people going back to the sort of toxic masculinity that they grew up with in their household or whatever? Like.
1: I mean, it, like, there's, there's, there's a lot of people that just want to be a sceptic anyway. Uh, I think there's a lot of people whose default position is that uh, that's shite, that's bullshit, you know, you can sort yourself out if you want to. Not everyone that's gone through childhood trauma is going to turn out the same way anyway. Not all of us are going to develop the same way. Some people might not develop coping mechanisms. They might go on to be just fine. Going through a trauma doesn't mean that everyone's going to turn out the same way. But a lot of people who are involved in addiction and severe mental health may have been impacted by trauma. So it's not to say that one causes the other, but if someone is in a world of mental health or addiction, there's a good possible chance they've gone through some trauma or they've experienced something in their childhood. Um, To suggest that one doesn't exist because someone else has gone through trauma and hasn't ended up that way is is a fallacy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think as well it provides the type of framework that we're talking. So when I'm talking earlier on about how we've kind of left boys behind in terms of allowing them to feel their emotions, I think as adults understanding these issues can allow us to make sure that your children don't find themselves in that same scenario where these impactors that have had negative connotations for their lives can then reflect them. So I think it's a really important school, I thought. And, and I think it's it's awesome as well that your work and your writing is also reflected in your life. Like, hearing that you're actually out there and, like, working on these things is, like, I think it's, it's amazing because, you know, you can bring such a wealthy experience to these people's lives when working with Thank them you. that can only come from where you've come from. You know what I mean? Like, so I'd just say, you know, thanks for that. Um, Thank you, man. i also seen you in a big way behind safe drug consumption, which, again, Paul and I are based... <coughs> Like huge fancy, and I've discussed on the show. um, What is it about the safe consumption side of things that sort of grabbed your attention, coming from your background?
1: So, I mean, I I didn't actually use heroin, so Mm -hmm. it's from a background that I I identify as an addict. I have lots of friends that are either still struggling with heroin use, or not even just heroin, injecting cocaine, or who were. Doing that and earn recovery from that and through the jobs I've done. You know, I'm an advocacy worker for addiction, so I've got lots of personal and professional experience with people who have lived that particular lifestyle. Mm-hmm. The first thing that stands out to me is the minute we do that, we start treating people as human beings and not as scummy, dirty addicts. Do you know what I mean? Because that's the yeah. thing. It's, it's like a dirty word, the junkie, the addict. The, and... The more there's drug paraphernalia on the streets, the more there are people injecting in the streets, the more there's going to be stigmatised attitudes and stereotypes about, oh, dirty scummy addict there. We can start reducing the stigma and the stereotypes the minute we start treating addiction like a human problem and a social problem. And that's the first thing that a safe consumption room does. The second thing it does is it provides a safe, healthy, clean environment for drugs to be consumed. It's reducing... Uh, the chance of overdose, or there's people there to help someone with naloxone if they do uh, overdose. Mm -hmm. From what the evidence shows, no one's died using these rooms, whether it's in this country or other countries. Um, It's a massive social problem that needs to be tackled. On its own, I don't think on its own it's going to stop the drug crisis. We've got the worst drug-related deaths in Europe, and potentially now the world, per head of population. But I think it's one very important tool and tackling that and giving people a safe place to go. And then there's, you know, it's all about harm reduction first and mm-hmm. foremost, right? You can reduce blood-borne viruses and other infections. You can stop someone from potentially dying or overdosing. You can then network them into other potential avenues of support. Mm-hmm. Um, it can lead to, you know, harm reductions very, very important and recovery at the end of that is also on our possibility, um, whether that's an abstinence space recovery or a different type of recovery. You know, there's, there's many different ways to get recovery. So just straight away, that one question pops off all these things that I think are, are good about yeah. that. Um, and all things at,
0: that are not really done effectively at the moment either.
1: No, I mean, we're so far behind other countries that are doing these types of things like portugal 20 years ago had the same kind of crisis we've got in scotland they radicalized it and don't get me wrong it wasn't just safe consumption rooms they provided education and housing and health options for people and loads of other things and naloxone and stuff like that so it needs to be like a packaged approach i think
0: yeah but That's what, something we're only just catching up with now, the nox on not it? I think only seen yeah. an article last week saying it was being made available to police officers, and you're talking about changes that are two decades old in other countries that are, in the grand scheme of things, not really that far phase, you know what I mean? So I, I agree with you there in that sense that we're miles behind other countries on this one.
2: Why do I you think the UK does not take like a progressive approach when it comes to like Because Portugal proved it straight off the bat. Like, I mean, the, the actual consumption of drugs plummeted um, among certain age groups and I think the age groups that they wanted it, like the teenage age group in particular, um, like you're saying people are being educated, they're supplying housing, like it's almost like you're thinking why would you not just copy and paste?
1: I I believe because we've got UK policy, the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971 which was made in the 70s uh, a very conservative old-fashioned drugs are bad kind of Attitude where drug use and drug users are viewed as social deviants and as criminal and they still see it as a criminal issue rather than a health problem and they're worried about the reaction if they start treating it as a health problem and they start um, treating addicts as people who aren't criminals. It's it's a very old-fashioned mindset. I mean they've got the advisory council of the misuse of drugs right and they had professor david nutt on he was the chairperson at one point and he advised the uk government you know what we're doing wrong we need to take a health approach and then they got rid of him so they don't even want to hear from the experts that they're bringing in you know Mm -hmm. and there's other experts that they pushed out as well because they didn't agree with their their stance to me it's it's a very political decision it's um Political ideology, mm-hmm. rather than doing what they know to be or they believe to be the best, what's
0: for the greatest good. Absolutely. I think it's probably more
1: important than ever then that
0: places like the Scottish Parliament have already recognised the book. I think was it? I've seen quite a lot of back and forth with you and is it Neil Finlay? Um, yeah. I think the book. I think the book was actually discussed on the floor of the Parliament as well. Were you? Was it an official commendation or something like that?
1: Yeah, so it was motioned by Neil Finlay and supported by a bunch of other um, politicians in Scottish Parliament as being a book that should be discussed when pertaining to the drugs death crisis. Um, So without me trying to get too political with the book, but Neil Finlay is the politician who is always, he's from West Logan, he's always seemed to be wanting to tackle the addiction problem. He's always asked me, both in a professional and a personal capacity, what can I do to help people in West Slavian? What can I do to make a difference? Um, he's very active and outgoing as far as trying to tackle the problem. That's very, very rare when it comes to politicians because it's such a contentious subject. And not a yeah. lot of them. A lot of them might actually care about this privately, but they won't do much about it publicly because mm-hmm. I guess it might be damaging for their career. But. The fact is is that Scotland has the worst drugs death crisis in Europe. It's, yeah. um, we've got devolved powers of health. We can't just point the finger at um, Westminster yeah. and blame them for everything. We've had devolved powers for health for 21 years. Mm-hmm. And that's the part of it that's always confused me, is they've kicked the ball almost
0: sort of relentlessly back to Westminster, is that we, we do have the power and the legislative ability to do something about it. You know what I mean? Like,
1: yeah, of course we can. We can do a lot of different things like what Peter Kagan's doing He's, I think, given some degree of tolerance by the local police and the local uh, council authority. It doesn't help that the Scottish government have been cutting the ADP budgets. They've cut them in half in 12 years. Um, I know there are other reasons why budgets have to be cut, but when you Mm -hmm. cut a health budget in half for the last 12 years, and then you get the worst crisis your your country's had... For Drugs and also yeah. a HIV spike in Glasgow, which is the worst the UK's ever seen in 30 years. We've wow. got the worst, our drugs crisis is worse than England's by about three and a half times or four times higher. So, we're en- England and Scotland both are under the same policy, Misuse of Drugs Act, yet Scotland has a much worse crisis than England. So, that tells you mm-hmm. that there's something happening in Scotland that we can't just blame on Westminster. That to me is again, it's another deluded fallacy, it's lazy, it's like saying, you know, I heard someone at Barry Sheridan say this, or or someone else, maybe I'm quoting the wrong person, but it's like saying um, when you're playing football and you say, oh, the big boys came and took the ball, so I can't play now. It's like such a defeatist mentality by our own government. Oh, Westminster have done it, so nothing I can do.
2: Uh, I think the word lazy stood out for me there. It's a very lazy response, isn't it? Is that well, we can't do that much about it because of budgetary constraints when we know that that isn't really the truth. And I think that it's important to also talk about, or just mention that this is across parties. This isn't a fuck the Tories type no, thing. No, mean, um, Matt, I've pretty much got a fuck the Tories podcast here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And... But Gordon Brown sacked his guy that told him that weed should be legalized, and Tony Blair did the same thing. Like their government, that Labour government, and then if it's been twenty years in this country, it's been a Labour Scottish government as well that's kicked the ball back down, and then SNP. So there does there doesn't seem to be a political will, um, and I'm thinking uh, this is just my opinion that it goes back to what you said—a sort of old school political thought of the scum get them out of society yeah. anyway it's not
1: it's yeah. not it's not a shiny subject right so before i say this i need to make, make sure i'm clar- clarifying what i'm saying there are lots of inequalities that we need to be tackling that, that we are tackling now and thanks, thank god we are so like whether it's to do with gender or sexual identification or skin color it seems that as this country is getting much more progressive in tackling those things and thank god that we are but for some reason, this particular problem with addiction mental health is getting worse and worse and worse. It doesn't seem to be a shiny, glossy subject that they want to talk no. about, and it's uh, to me, it feels again like it's it's like that dirty taboo subject that we're not wanting to shit about it I've got an, an m p um Westlo called Hannah Bardell, and there are some things that she will be out there very publicly speaking about, and there's other things that she will talk about like what Westminster have done wrong. But you'll never see them conceding what the Scottish Government's done wrong. I mean, yeah. Maybe maybe it's career suicide to do that if you're on that political party. But I
0: think we should be doing all we can to make it career suicide and do something about this. You that's the I mean? point,
1: man. People like see since I released the book I'm in I'm in West Lothian, right? And the in the last seven weeks and there's no exaggerating what I'm saying here. So many people have contacted me for West Lothian to say my partner's suffering with mental health addiction or I'm suffering with it, or my son or daughter's suffering with it. Where can I go for support? And they're coming to me because I spoke out. And my true answer is that I don't know where you can go because you go to your GP, you've got a year and a half to wait till you see a psychiatrist. We're relying on charities and third sector organisations who are working at the bare bones with hardly yeah. any funding. And I mean, before COVID, this, is, this has been going on since before COVID. We're not just blaming... What? The pandemic. There's no services, the services we have are strained. We're relying on third sector organisations to deal with all the inequalities in society. And, you know, I've been, for three years, I've been trying to get MPs and certain elected members in my local area to notice this stuff. And they keep shutting the door in my face. And this is before I wrote the book and everything. Yeah. But other things I'd seen and they're not interested, but when it's other subject matters, again, very important ones, but when it's mm-hmm. other subject matters that they particularly more personally care about, oh, they'll shout about it all day long, they'll go to all the events, they'll speak at all the stuff, um, but when someone says, by the way, the Scottish government are failing addicts, they're failing people with mental health, what have you got to do about it? Silence.
0: Aye. Mm-hmm. And I,
1: it's a shame. I mean, as, as
0: part of your work, I mean, other... Measures that you'd like to see the Scottish Government take? Are there any specific measures that you yourself and your, and your experience would like to see the Scottish Government taking?
1: I would like them to do everything they can within the law to offer services to people who need it, not just addicts, people with mental health. They need to invest more in health services for people. Like they're putting up loads of wee sticky plaster services. That's what I've seen in West Slovians. So we'll have like, mm-hmm. we've got two hubs that have just opened here and they're, they're very, you know, they're purposeful hubs so for people with short-term or lower-level mental health stuff. But that's more about taking pressure off GPs and, and CPNs and stuff. It's not about dealing with the problem. If someone who's working class or doesn't have a lot of money, or, you know, even if they're working a good job and they don't have the money, if they've got a problem with mental health or addiction, unless they go and pay for therapy, which can be expensive, then there are no services for them. There's nothing. So the Scottish government are talking about wanting to be independent. If you want to be an independent country, take care of your people.
0: Aye, <laughs> and invest
1: ones. in services. You cannot claim that you're ready for independence when you've got the biggest drugs death crisis in your history, when you've got the biggest HIV spike in the history of the UK for the last 30 years, mm-hmm. when the death crisis is almost, or maybe even potentially the worst in the world, for drug-related deaths, you, yeah. cannot, you cannot have that on your books and say, we're ready for independence, yeah. in my opinion.
0: And I know it's yeah. not a fair comparison, but if, I think if you look at how quickly things like the Scottish government mobilised in the face of a public health crisis and COVID, it's even more gone. I know there are differences and, you know, heroin is maybe no addictive or, uh, you know, contagious, if you follow me. Um, it's definitely addictive. Um, but... Like, to see them mobilise and so slowly or not at all when there is also a public health, it's taken 1,500 Glaswegians in the last year it's take, so, sort of right, in that right, ballpark, right, you know what I mean? Like,
1: what's, what's happening with the safe consumption rooms is that Peter Kraken lost his job doing it. He lost his job from a very good organisation who obviously couldn't keep employing them politically, I don't know, that's nothing to do with me. He lost his job because he believed in this so much. Basically, a guy in a van has got everyone talking, when it should have been, it should have been MSPs, it should have been people that have the power and the influence and the privilege. You know, people talk about privilege, right? About who has privilege in society, that's a contentious topic. You know who really has the privilege and the power? The MPs that have been elected. Uh, You've been elected by your constituency because you've, you've got a voice, you've got influence, you've got privilege, you've got power. You have the ability to make things happen. And for me, they're just too quiet too much of the time when it comes to this stuff. And someone in a van has got everyone talking about it because he believed in it enough to uh-huh. risk his own career. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. I think we should give and a big shout out to too. Paul Sweeney.
1: Yes, because
2: Paul Paul Sweeney, I think, I was going to say this earlier on, we want to talk about career suicide, like that that guy lost his seat talking about the unglamorous stuff, talking about the issues that we're facing and his constituency in North Glasgow, that guy didn't come out with the SNP bad message at the the last Scottish election and he did an Mm -hmm. episode where he actually was saying he he was deliberately not doing that because he wanted to talk about things that he was passionate about, which was the the unglamorous side of politics and... He lost his seat, but he continues. I mean, that guy's jobless. When we had him on, um, yeah. he was talking about applying for universal credit during the COVID crisis. Wow. And, he, and he's out there getting his, as many journalists, people, media people down there to shine a light on that. So I think it's important that we, we keep polish out because it's um, yeah. admirable. Do you know to ironic people?
1: to me? To me, he's the sort of person I would want representing me. He's someone that should have a seat.
0: Yeah, I voted for him, but it didn't matter.
1: <laughs> um, just
0: to bring it back to the book, as we as we kind of start to wrap up, um, one of the observations on line recently um, was that Scottish literature was basically chock full of you know misery porn, as the as a sort of generic term that often kind of gets used on it. Um, now, like in a week where one of those stories has went on and won the biggest prize in world literature. Um, When we've got guys out there, authors and artists like Dan McGarvey, who released really powerful work during the week as well, like, we have got yourself here talking about a really personal, you know, part of yourself that you've chosen to share with everybody in the hope that some good can come out. Like, how important is it that we keep having these conversations despite the people that say enough is enough?
1: Well, I mean... Art in any form is an expression of what you've experienced and what you're feeling and what your emotions are. What I would say is, if we've got an environment where people aren't going to suffer anymore, there won't be any more need for misery porn and there won't be a need for it. So take away the need to make it and we will stop making it. But if we keep producing people in a society that are having to suffer because we're being failed by systems, I and mean, I was failed by a high school that was just not fit for purpose. I grew up in a social housing scheme where was full of violence. A lot of the decisions I made were my own bad choices too, but if we continuously, historically keep creating environments where people are going to struggle and suffer, then what fucking choice have they got but to vent out and create art that someone else might refer to as misery porn? When the world's a better place for these people, we'll produce more fluffy work.
0: (laughs) As...
2: The correct answer. <laughs> Aye, beautifully put. But I think like there's a there's a another point in it here where the misery porn shite is coming for people at the Herald. Pe- people Aye. but people within Scotland and then you've got Douglas Stewart winning the Booker Prize in New York getting plaudits for this type of book. I mean, he was actually told similar to yourself that this won't work. This isn't yeah, going because, to work.
1: you know what? It goes back to what that singer told me. People want honesty. And I knew when I was writing this that if it was if it was even exaggerated slightly, Scottish people straight away call bullshit on that. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. um, mm-hmm. And other people too. But I know my, my own fellow Scottish folk would be like, that's fucking pish. But people recognize what's real. And we need real more than ever because, you know what, seeing the media and see a lot of politicians were getting fed bullshit. So perhaps what people prefer is just give me a dose of real. If that means there's a bit of misery involved in it, just give me it because it's real.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, very interesting talking to um, people about their second time around, and I'm obsessed with this. I think I've got some sort of like obsession about motivation um, and how, how you drive yourself to success. Like I'm obsessed with successful people. I think like the second album is the traditional banana skin. Um, and I think when we spoke to Chris McQueer as well, two and a half, three years ago, he was in the, the middle of trying to get to that second book and trying to motivate himself and had a really good conversation. So have you started your second project yet?
1: Yeah, I'm five chapters into my next book and I've decided to do something entirely well, it's different, but it's also covering... Some similar themes so it's, it's a fiction it's, uh, it's called Where the Fuck is Phil and it's based in West Lothian in the early 2000s it's fictionalized so that I can be a bit outlandish with the story and there's a lot more dialogue in it whereas my memoirs more me talking to the reader I want to capture what, what it was a bit masculinity basically what did it mean to be a lad in that lad culture during that time and it's set against the backdrop of the kind of dying trance scene and that kind of mirrors the lack of identity that the lads have. Um, so it'd be dead easy for me to go, oh, here's another kind of memoir and some more. I'm going to hit you in the feels with another memoir. But I've told my story now and yeah. if, if I was to do an another memoir, I'd particularly like to speak to some of the lads I grew up with and tell their story. But for this fiction, it's, it's based on the people I grew up with it's capturing a very specific period of time and it's looking at all the different stuff that was intertwined with a lad culture and it's again it's going to be a bit of a nostalgia tour because it's the trance scene as well so it's probably a risk going straight into a fiction. I, I tried to get funding from Creative Scotland to allow me the time to write it because I'm studying and I've got a job and yeah you know, um you don't get paid for your book until twice a year i think you get paid and depending on how well my book does will depend on if it's enough to go away and work on our books so i like mm-hmm. to creative scotland but see to be honest creative scotland's not set up for for offers coming through i'm pretty sure loki said this in the past as well i might be wrong mm-hmm. there's no real funding for me to do it so i'm having to do it at the same time as studying and working and promoting this book and being a dad so it's taken a bit longer than i'd like to but i'm almost at the halfway point I know how it's going to finish. I'm hoping to get it to a publisher by next year.
0: That's awesome. We'll you, knit your hat is up when it's out and we'll get you back in because it's oh, well, been brilliant chatting to you.
1: Thank you very much, guys. It's been a pleasure and a privilege being here. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Where can everybody find the book?
1: Euphoric Recall at the moment is out on ebook and paperback so we can get it on Kindle if you go on Amazon. You can get paperback on Amazon. You can go to Guts Publishing website. You can order from Waterstones. You can... <clears throat> google it and it'll come up for most online retailers and it's in a few bookstores in London and West Lovian and Edinburgh at the moment so um, and the audiobook was delayed because of the virus because I couldn't get into the studio but I've just finished recording that so that'll be ready in the next month or two.
2: Kind of Thanks for the light man, like recording your audiobook.
1: It was so hard and I'll tell you why it was hard, for two reasons, one there's, it's one thing writing down trauma, it's another thing saying it out loud mm. and saying it with someone you've just met who's recording it. And I'd done it with a studio called uh, Where a Fox My Studio in Bathgate, a guy called Fraser Brown. They were fucking amazing. And Fraser made it so safe for me to go through that stuff again. And man, we laughed and we cried and we, we had sighs of relief and we went through all of it. But the real hard part is trying to concentrate to get 5,000 words per chapter out because... You need to pronunciate your words and you need to not sound robotic. So you're focusing so hard and there would be Freudian slips here and there. There was one that was my particular favorite when the sentence was starting uh, my previous cocaine habit. And I said, my precious cocaine habit. It was like Gollum for Lord (laughs) of the Rings, man. I was like, my precious cocaine habit. Uh, I remember Uh, that feeling. (laughs) So... (laughs) It was very, very intense and I'm so relieved of that. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life.
2: Do you need to
0: give a wee shout, we'll get a bump when it comes out, man.
2: Thank you. Yeah, man, I'm gonna do what I do with a lot because I've migrated over to Audible and I know that Audible is like the Spotify of the literature world. So what I'm gonna do is and anybody that's listening, this is what you should fucking do as well. I'm gonna buy your paperback and put it in my bookshelf and then I'll listen to the audio book when it comes out. Um because you. You, I want you to get the money and if I do the audio, audible credit and take the free download I'm sure you'll get a fucking fraction of a penny or whatever for that so I, I'm going to buy the paperback um, and do the audiobook because that's my preferred way of consuming uh, literature man. but it's awesome. been a pleasure to talk to you mate absolute pleasure you too guys, thank man.
3: you Style. A life I lived a while. Just stop the party. Smiles and trials of fire